Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. BZ, you're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. We have Drury R. Sherrod with the jury crisis. It seems that juries aren't all that cracked up to be sometimes. Thank you very much for being with us, sir. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, you run a research firm, a jury research firm. Tell me about that. Well, we uh, jury researchers are sort of like the TV show, Dr. Bull, that a lot of people have seen, but that's a very amped up, cranked up version of what we do. Basically, jury researchers will run mock trials to help the client understand the likely verdict and how to prepare for it. So to do that, we recruit uh, several hundred jurors, depending on the case, who match the, the people in the uh, venue. They hear many versions of the trial, they fill out detailed questionnaires, and after we analyze those, we can understand the likelihood of uh, what kind of verdict is likely to be turned in this case, um, what the damages might be, what alternative better strategies might be, and how to implement those. That's what jury consultants do. We, I usually pause here and say we market justice. Interesting. Speaking of market, it's expensive, I'm guessing, and I suppose that's what makes a defense, part of what makes a defense so very expensive. Is there any way you can give me a hint as to how much that kind of thing costs? Well, probably a fraction of what lawyers bill. Um, it is expensive, but it's only really worthwhile when, when a lot is at stake. When if a corporation is being sued, there's $50 million at stake or several billion dollars at stake. When it's, when it's in the company or the client's um, advantage to figure out what's going to happen to us. Is the legal system moving so, away from trial by jury? Uh, intensely. That's, that's the, the nut of my book, that uh, what we're seeing right now is the shriveling on the vine of trial by jury. We are seeing the death of the jury trial in America. Trial by jury is enshrined in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments of the Constitution, but we are waiving our right to trial by jury. We're waiving it away. Well, it uh, is, one reason is almost... It, go it, ahead. It's very flawed. Is it necessarily the best thing? I know that it sounds good and it feels good to say that, but juries juries are flawed. Jury trial verdicts are flawed. Is that partly why they're going away? I think part of why they're going away is um, juries are mistrusted. Juries are denigrated. Juries are demeaned. Jury verdicts are ridiculed. I seldom work with an attorney when um, they don't mention the McDonald's coffee case of 25 years ago now. Um, often they mention the OJ case. Often um, people mention the Dr. Bull uh, stuff on TV. So all these tend to make juries look like um, they're easy to um, delude, easy to 
predict, um, unlikely to reach a just verdict. Is that true? Or I should say, to what degree is that true? Well, I would say you have to figure out where the problem lies. Is the problem with the court system, with judges, with attorneys, with law schools, or is it with juries, jurors, the human brain? And so as we talk about this, I'm going to try to make a case that a lot of what happens to make jury verdicts not understandable is that information, evidence, trials aren't pitched to the level the human brain can understand. Uh, trial by jury has been around for 900 years since the Magna Carta, and it worked fine for probably 800 years. Over the last 100 years, and especially over the last sort of 20 to 30 years, that's when the cases have gotten just really too complicated for humans to, to uh, follow very easily. If I can give a couple examples, you know, everybody knows about the El Chapo case. Right. That case went on for three months of testimony, lots of lurid uh, witnesses' uh, testimony. Uh, the judge gave three hours of instructions. You know, judges' instructions are pretty arcane and abstruse if you've ever heard them. And the jury deliberated for seven days before reaching a verdict. And in those seven days, they had to reach basically 54 verdict questions. It wasn't just a simple guilty or not guilty. There were different counts and subcounts. And we don't know how the jurors, uh, how the jurors analyzed everything because these people were too frightened to want to give any information about themselves. And no one from the New York Times, for example, has called them up to say, you know, how did you guys reach the decision you reached? Because these jurors fear um, uh, retribution. Interesting. If, if a juror does not understand the directions or parts of the trial, what is the default likely to be? They would default to not guilty because they wouldn't want to say guilty, not understanding? Well, first they would send the judge lots of lots of questions, probably saying, you know, we're we're kind of deadlocked. Uh, we don't understand this. Can you tell? Can you um, explain the, your instructions more clearly? For example, um, couple, you know, in the past year there were two Bill Cosby trials. The first Bill Cosby trial ended in a mistrial, and uh, there were I think 52 hours of deliberations, and after 32 hours, the jurors said no one budged. They they were interviewed in this case by the New York Times. The jurors said no one budged. After And so for the next 20 hours, they just sat there maintaining their positions. And, um, for example, they say they spent a whole day trying to decide what reckless meant because one of the charges was that um, was the woman reckless for having gone to Cosby's room, knowing, knowing that um, they might be compromised in some way. That makes sense, so though, because there's a, there's a legal definition of reckless, and they want to well, they, try to understand. Yeah, they sent the judge an instruction, a question, like, what's, what does reckless mean? And the judge said, you have to use your own common sense. Oh, my God. And basically, in the jury interview also, one of the jurors said what meant one thing to one person meant something else to another person. So they couldn't even agree. For example, reckless was a term they couldn't agree on what it meant. But in many trials, jurors from different walks of life see the facts, if there are facts, so differently that they actually appraise things like risk. Like, what is risk? You know, what is harm? What is reasonableness? What is ordinary care? All those words mean different things to different people. So in many cases, the juror's job is to be a trier of fact, to try facts, which means to ascertain if something actually happened. But often the facts are completely unknowable. So the jurors have to essentially use their common sense to kind of make up facts to fill in. So wow, and that's, that's, the that's, that's where you get to your concept of a story. But I'll get to that later. You mentioned juries try facts. They didn't always. They used to actually supply facts, correct? 
Yeah, in the earliest days, uh, there were no witnesses, there was no evidence. Uh, it was been a, being a little Anglo-Saxon village. Everybody would know each other. The king would send an officer in. The officer would say, you know, this person is accused of uh, stealing a neighbor's sheep. Let's say it's a nice Anglo-Saxon name, Godric. Godric stole his neighbor's sheep. The jurors then just have a little conversation for about half an hour. You know, um, I've known Godric all his life. Would he have done something like that? Somebody else says, I don't know, he's been acting strange lately. Somebody else says, well, I saw a sheepskin cover in his cart the other day. And then that's, that's the way they would reach a verdict. And then the officer then, would, would, would reach the verdict, or they reach it themselves? Well, they would reach a verdict, and, they would, and often they would, um, they would change facts because they liked the person, and they thought it was, the accusation was unfair by the king's officers. So they would make up facts to exonerate the person. So trial by jury has always been, um, well, early on it was jurors supplied facts. They weren't triers of fact. They supplied the facts themselves. And that's one question that we'll talk about is whether we still do that. Do we still make up facts and ignore facts that don't fit our stories? There's a really interesting um, series of psychology experiments. They were done a few decades back, but they were done in Boston, and they had to do with the murder that took place in Boston. There were two men, a very large man and a small, slight man, who had a quarrel in a bar. Uh, they left. That night, they each came back to the bar. They went outside, had a little fight. The, uh, the big man had a straight razor, the small man had a fishing knife. After some contact between the two of them, the big man was stabbed to death and he fell to the ground and the small, and the small man was arrested for murder. So there was a trial and then um, uh, the psych psychologists actually reenacted, they, they hired actors to, fit, to um, film this whole trial. They filmed the trial, all the witnesses, all the subjects were, um, were, were hired actors and then they hired uh, subjects who were potential jurors who actually could have been selected for a jury in Boston. And they had these subjects watch the reenactment that was filmed of the trial. And then um, the experimenter would be sitting there, and as the subjects, as the trial began on film, the subject would be sitting right at the experimenter's elbow. And the experimenter would say, tell us everything. Be one of the jurors. Tell us everything that goes through your head as you're watching this film. And what turned out was fascinating, that almost from the very beginning, jurors started telling stories like, you know, the, little, the smaller man had this fishing knife because he was afraid for his life. Or the smaller man had been humiliated early in the day and he came back to settle the, the score. So they started telling stories right away, and the stories reflected events from their own life. And I think this is fascinating. Almost half of what the jurors talked about during these mock deliberations were, um, were never presented as evidence. It was only uh, events from their own life which were similar to the trial. So the evidence, there's no real evidence, and, and when they were given a list of uh, statements that actually were in the trial, they would ignore the statements. They would say, I've never heard this before, if it didn't fit their, their view, their verdict. And they would uh, falsely remember statements that were never presented that did fit their verdict. So essentially, they make up a story. They arrive at a story. They use that to reach a verdict. They use that to guide what they attend to during the cases that are when the evidence is presented. So if that's the case, so then the whole then the whole case is won or lost in jury selection. Well, partly there, also largely in how information is, is uh, presented to jurors. If you know that jurors are storytellers, then why would you present evidence to them as a, in a, in a non-narrative way, which is typically what attorneys will do. They will have, say, a, a yellow pad, 50 yeah. statements, they check off each one, something, this witness is going to testify to this, this witness to this, this other witness to this, the witnesses come in out of order, jurors aren't really able to fit it together. Instead of first giving them an overall narrative and then having the narrative be fairly simple, you know, with several themes, and then having, um, ex using the narrative to explain the evidence that jurors will hear, and then having each witness understand how his role relates to the overall narrative. 
I see. If you don't give them a story, they fill in the blanks with their own story that's highly based on their personal experience. So you need to fill in the story, every detail of the story that you that in a way that benefits you. Yeah, or you could you could say in a way that makes the facts clearer. Oh, and then, well. and then, uh, but you still have people with different backgrounds making a different story. I mean, you can't completely hijack uh, the jurors and give them a story and then change their minds and have them uh, ignore anything that doesn't fit the story you tried you tried to implant. You can't implant stories. That's kind of a Dr. Bull thing. What you can do is have uh, help the jurors to clarify their verdicts as as much as possible via the stories they tell, so that when they deliberate, they can realize they're really talking about stories instead of facts. Okay, how does the story scenario, let me phrase it differently, how does the OJ case uh, display this in a, this storytelling, story creation in action? Okay, I think that's a really interesting question. <laughs> because I think that at the time, the national polls showed that 85% of black people thought OJ was innocent, and about 85% of white people thought he was guilty. <laughs> and... There were eight black people on the jury, so it wasn't hard for me to tell my friends it's going to be acquittal by noon. And I think the reason is that I, I live uh, lived near L.A. then and still do. The reason is that most African Americans in L.A. had been hassled, harassed in some way by the LAPD. So for them, it, it made complete sense, the allegation that a racist cop had jiggered the evidence and moved some evidence around and maybe faked the blood Whereas white people saw that as just too bizarre, they couldn't, the police wouldn't do that. So the African-Americans on the jury and in the panel, the national panel, actually saw different facts than the white people saw. So they told different stories because they started off drawing experiences from their own lives. African-Americans had been harassed, insulted by the LAPD. So they draw those stories that reflect that, and it makes it highly plausible that the police had somehow tricked the evidence. Including the DNA evidence, that somehow their story rendered the DNA evidence uh, not effective? See, I think they thought the, the evidence had been um, substituted, uh, had been mishandled uh, in storage, or something had been moved around, the glove had been moved around, or the blood that they found uh, had been planted by the racist cop. See, once you, um, once you have a story, then you look for evidence that you seek out evidence that supports your story, and you make up facts that support the story. Well, you know, we see that every day when, in, in my job here, we, if we do a political topic, we see the right supplying their story and the left supplying an entirely different story over the same set of facts. So it's not just in juries. Yeah. We all do it. So you get to voir dire. How does the knowledge that you have affect how that goes? And how, has that process evolved? Yeah, here's a couple of things. Partly... Um it depends on who shows up, who answers the jury summons. There are nice and recent current data that about 15% uh, of people who receive jury summons actually never receive them. They've moved, they've changed their addresses, their addresses haven't been updated. Uh, no one has managed to, um, to track them down. So 15% of uh, jury summons are non-deliverable. Another probably 12%, I think 12% is the figure, of people who actually get their summons simply ignore them. They, uh, they, just, they, never, they pretend they never got it. And most people can get away with it, although in some states, uh, states who are trying to control this, uh, if somebody is pulled over for a traffic violation, the officer might say, I noticed also you've uh, skipped your jury duty uh, three different times in a row. I, we could actually arrest you for that, sir. Do you realize that? So some states, some states do it through threat. 
some states do it through um, making it easier. Like in California, you call in each morning for six or seven days, and the automatic voice tells you if you're needed to show up or not. So that's one problem, that the people who show up are not a cross-section. And then the second problem there is that of the people who show up, there are pretty liberal um, uh, excuses given to strike people. For example, you can strike some people because for cause, because they clearly seem to have already made up their mind and say to the judge, I couldn't, be, uh, couldn't keep an open mind. And then, and then after the strikes for cause, there are peremptory strikes where attorneys can just strike, say, six to 12 people because they don't like them or because he's thinking, that lady's squinting at me, or I've never gotten along with a man who wore that color tie, <laughs> so that kind of thing. Okay. And, and then it comes down to, and I think that's your question that I'm finally getting to, it comes down to, so what do you do with Wadir? And the first part of this answer is that if you're selecting, if you know that people are going to tell stories, then you have to realize that Wadir is about storytelling. So you have to figure out who's going to tell what kind of story. And the reason, I mean, how you figure that out is not the way most attorneys go about it, like asking, um, you know, what's the last three books you've read? You know, what are your favorite TV shows? What bumper stickers do you have on your car? That doesn't work very well. What works is very detailed questionnaires that you would have the jurors fill out with a whole series of questions about their specific attitudes, lifestyles, experiences, values that relate directly to the case. So you can get a pretty good sense of, given how people answered this whole cluster of questions about the events in their own life that, that most directly resemble the case, we can probably predict how those people are going to vote. Now, given that there are so many problems with, and, and there have been problems for some time with jury trials, why are they so valuable? Why are they held so dear? And wouldn't a, like one judge, of course, is very likely to be, not impartial, but maybe a panel of judges or professional jurors. Why wouldn't that be better? Okay, two levels. Two levels of that question. Um, the first is that trial by jury is when jurors speak truth to power. It's when they tell the state that you can't incarcerate or execute this individual. It's when they tell corporations that you made a defective product that uh, took some lives and you're going to pay 150 million dollars for this. I get it. I, I see what you're saying. It gives it gives the everyday Joe some muscle. Yeah, and also um, America takes juries much more seriously than any other country. Most of Europe has remnants of the Napoleonic system where magistrates or judges arrive at verdicts for most cases except those that are extremely uh, difficult or could potentially uh, lead to long incarceration. Whereas in America, all those kind of cases go to... Um, individual jurors, just, just everyday people. That's that's really the magic and the miracle of the American system. Okay, and that's a, a system of professional jurors wouldn't wouldn't work or wouldn't be so good? You wouldn't, uh -huh. you wouldn't favor that's, that? No, and the reason would be that um, judges, arbitrators, mediators, the kind of experts who you might recall professional jurors, those people also have the same kind of their work, their brains work the same way that regular jurors' brains do. They also leap to conclusions. They tell stories. <laughs> they tell stories that are more vivid and understandable to them than performing a complex uh, analytic over overview of all di different types of evidence. So they also are guided by stories, and you tend to have this the the power to tell these stories vested in just a handful of people, like one person, say, in an arbitrator, or maybe three people in a three-judge panel. That, that, that federal appellate case. All right. So you don't escape storytelling, ever. 
I appreciate that. Drury R. Sherrod, this is a really good book. I actually have an attorney friend I'm going to pass it on to. Thank you. The Jury Crisis, What's Wrong with Jury Trials and How We Can Save Them? We just went over some main facts. There's a lot, lot more in here, and you might want to pick it up. I think, folks, a lot of you would like it. And thank you, sir. Thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm happy being here. All right. There you go. There's another episode of the Jay Talking Podcast. Follow me on Twitter for show updates. If you loved what you heard, like and review the show. It helps others find us. And as always, you can catch the show live. Jay Talking Live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to 5 on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.